The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Our scripture passage today is found in Luke 9, verses 23 through 36. If you are using the black Bible in front of you, you will find this on page 814. Please stand with me as I read God's word. Luke 9, verse 23. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We'll want to uh, keep your finger and your copy of scripture there. Again, we reread verses 23 through 27, the Savior's summons, as we saw last week, and we're actually going to cast our gaze all the way down through the end of verse 50. Uh, if you saw my Slack post this past week, then you will know that uh, there is overlap from last week to this week. So last week we called the title of the sermon, The Savior's Summons, part one, and for all of us who are uh, very intuitive, that means today's title is the Savior Summons Part 2. There you go. So there, there you go. One, one clap. I'll thank you, Brady. I appreciate that. So the Savior Summons, and so the reason why we just basically did a Part 1 and Part 2 is because, as I said in that Slack post, that the Savior Summons, the summons to deny self, die daily, and follow Him, it is the, the structural nucleus to these 50 verses. And we focused on what does that mean? What is the Savior summons? We asked that question, if you remember last week, what does Jesus demand of me? And that's what we talked about. Now, some of you last week came up and told me, man, that was a heavy sermon. And I then responded to you that I spoke out of a sense of my own desperation. I wasn't speaking from a place of, of perfection, of having arrived. The call to deny, die, and follow is the Savior's summons, but it is also a struggle to do daily. Amen? Anyone here have a struggle to deny self daily? To die to self daily? To follow Jesus daily? Okay. I think Luke recognizes this. And so as he swings into the back half of these 50 verses... You're going to see him redouble down on the mission and the identity of Jesus, but you're also going to see a string of failures on the part of the disciples to do the very thing that Jesus has called them to do. 
And I think Luke is giving you, me, an invitation to recognize the Savior's summons is the Savior's summons. It is what it means to follow him, but also to recognize that the call to Christ-reliance is a call to kill self-reliance, and it's actually the invitation of don't go be self-reliant and trying to be Christ-reliant. Does that make sense? Some of us can hear this, I will go be Christ-reliant. Then you walk out the door trying to be self-reliant and being Christ-reliant. And I think you're going to see a measure of this in the disciples' lives this morning where the string of failures is a failure and it's just the ebb and flow of the struggles you, me, we have in denying, dying, and following. And so I think Luke recognizes this. He's giving us an invitation and he's calling us to come see our desperate need for Jesus to open our eyes to the absolute crucial reality of Jesus is the Savior who came to suffer, die, and rise again, and we need him every single day, okay? So for these reasons, I worded our main idea this morning in the form of a prayer, actually. And I think if we could take the main idea and form it into a prayer, it would go like this to encapsulate our sermon this morning. It'd say, Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me right now. Help me to grasp the centrality of your death and resurrection. Help me to grasp who you are and what you came to do as crucial for my daily discipleship. If I think you get anything, get this. When we fail to see Jesus is the one who served selflessly, Jesus is the one who picked up his cross literally. Jesus is the one who denied self and carried his cross. We then will fail to walk in a likewise manner. When we don't see these things as crucial for my parenting, when we fail to see these things as crucial for my job, for my conversation, for my dating, for my work, we will then walk in a manner where we fail to see how crucial the centrality of Jesus' death and resurrection is, and then it becomes very easy to not deny self, to not die daily, to not follow him when we lose sight of the centrality of Jesus' death and resurrection. If you get nothing else today, get this and the invitation that Luke gives us to come and see our need for Jesus. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into it. Jesus, would you do this? Would you help us to grasp the centrality of your death, the centrality of your resurrection as crucial for my everyday discipleship, for my daily, deathly, self-denying Christ-reliant pursuit of you in everyday life. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see Jesus. Jesus, open our minds to understand the scriptures before us. Use me as an instrument of proclamation this morning. Take me by the scruff of the neck, as it were. Set me aside so that the one front and center is Christ. Lord, we ask you to do these things. It's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Again, if you remember last Sunday, we began by asking that question, what does Jesus demand of us? What does he demand of you? What does he demand of me? And we recognized that Jesus gave a summons, in the, and that summons was the answer to that question. It was, if anyone would come after me, anyone wants to be my disciple, wants to follow me in submission to me as Christ, Savior, Lord, then Jesus said, here is the demand. Here is the cost of pursuing me in this way. It is the call, the cost, the summons to deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. 
And then if you remember, we made the hard connection that the reason why Jesus is giving this summons is because, in essence, this is what he modeled in his life. As the Christ of God, who has the mission himself to suffer, die, and rise again, he is modeling by saying, if I, the master, am going to walk this way, your pursuit of me is going to match this kind of reality. The servant's not greater than the master. If the master lived this way, those who serve and follow are going to walk in a similar manner. We said that though many may try, we cannot, we must not divorce the followership of Jesus from the identity and mission of Jesus. If your life is like mine, it's often when I find my followership, my discipleship, my pursuit of Jesus begin to sort of deviate off course or grow cold, it's because I tend to lose sight of the fact that the Savior that I follow is the Savior who came to suffer die and rise again. I just lose fact of the Christ or lose lose sight of the fact that Jesus is the Christ who came to do these things. And so we said that we must keep these identity, this mission of Jesus front and center. It's because of who he is, because of what he came to do that everyday discipleship involves making a daily deathly decision. I will not walk in a self-reliant way, but I will walk in a Christ-reliant way. I will not get up and operate in such a way where I seek to gain the whole world and to save my life, but I will lose my life so that for the, for, not for the gain of the world, but for the gain of eternal life, for the gain of Christ himself, being able to know him intimately in precious ways, that means something when I'm just walking through the mundane rhythms of everyday life. Now, when you turn into Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 50, what we recognize and what I've said is this, everything in these 50 verses orbits around this nucleus of the Savior's summons to to, uh, deny, die, and follow him. Those verses 23 through 27, they are the hub, the center point of these 50 verses. Jesus has revealed himself. He has been revealed. He is the Christ. His identity has been made known. Jesus has revealed his mission, and he's connecting the dots for his followers because of who I am and what I came to do. This is how this impacts you in everyday life. Now, when you go to the back side of the summons, the verses that we have before us this morning, what you're going to see is Luke just is simply going to say this, we cannot move past this point. We have to, have to, have to wrestle with the fact of who Jesus is and what he came to do. But here's the thing when you roll into the back half of those 50 verses, when you begin to read verses 28 through 50, these Verses, these stories that Luke has put together in the telling of the life of Christ, they just feel so random. They feel like a random hodgepodge of events just are stuck together. He tells the story of how Jesus goes up on the mountain and is transfigured. Then he goes right into the story of how he heals a child possessed by an evil spirit. And then right on the tail of that, he says, guys, you need to know, I must die. He tells us about his death a second time. And then he turns around and he talks about how the disciples begin to argue about who's the greatest. And then here is John saying, well, what about this guy who's going around doing Jesus stuff and he's not part of our group? And even if you keep on going, they have another interaction where that doesn't go well. They're like, shouldn't we call down fire from heaven on these people? And it's just like sort of a string of just random events. And it's sometimes hard to trace the line through what Luke wants us to see. But far from random details strung together, my argument before you this morning is that Luke, with a doctor's precision, is putting these events together for a reason. Yes, these events orbit the core focal point of Jesus' summons to daily discipleship, but they also reveal the disciples' struggles 
and the disciples' repeated failure to obey this discipleship summons from Jesus. So on one hand, Jesus' identity has been grasped. On one hand, it has been understood. Who do you say that I am? Peter speaks up for himself, and I would argue the disciples, you are the Christ of God, fully grasping, fully understanding who he is. But on the other hand, the disciples are failing to understand the absolute mustness of his mission. And it's in that failure to see clearly. It's like a blind man who's been healed halfway. Yes, you're not totally blind. But yes, you're also not totally seen. You see some things, but you're not seeing everything in the way they ought to be seen. And so what this means is that it's this failure of sight Seeing Jesus as Christ, but failing to see him as the suffering servant that is going to lead into a string of failures in which they will fail in their cross-carrying self-denial like Jesus. You see, I think this is what Luke wants us to see this morning. I think he wants us to see the that this kind of struggle is real, but it also doesn't mean that we then get to wash our hands and go, well, I guess I don't need to die, deny, and follow. He's going to show us what it means to pursue the summons, absolutely relying on Jesus. Because of our followership of Jesus, because it can be one step forward, two steps back, one step forward, three steps back, we pray to Jesus, I need you to help me. Has anyone just ever been in this position before? Like you wake up on Monday morning, you're like, the God's word pierced my heart. I will deny. I will die. I will follow. And you get up on the next morning, and it's just like you're a half hour into the day, and you're like, oh, Lord, I am self-reliant. I'm not dying to self. I'm living for self. I'm not following Jesus in this moment. I'm following me and my flesh in this moment. That is the dynamic tension of followership, yes? Jesus recognizes this. Jesus knows this. This is why we pray, Jesus, I need you to help me right now. I need you as the suffering servant to do what you have the power to do. If you remember back in Luke 4 when Jesus is reading from the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah 61 says, when the suffering servant comes, this shepherd king, this chosen one, this son to whom we are to listen, when he comes, he's going to come proclaiming the gospel. And one of the things Isaiah says is he'll do is he'll come and he'll open the eyes of the blind. I think there's physical and spiritual realities to that. Jesus is obviously opening physical eyes. He's touching people. He's healing them. But it's also to show us that spiritually, when we go throughout our days, when we strive in those self-reliant moments, when we get up and say, I refuse to die to self, I will live for self, and I will follow me in this moment, and then you walk that path, and you reap what you have sown, and then you realize in this moment, man, I was not pursuing Jesus in a way that he's called me to pursue him. I have a choice right now. I'm either going to curl in on self again, or you're going to turn your eyes to the Isaiah 61 suffering servant and say, if you are the one who has come to open the eyes of the blind, I am begging you to open my spiritual eyes to see, see in this moment, What your death, what your work on the cross, what your suffering, what your resurrection means for me as I'm talking to my child who's being disobedient right now. What does this mean for me as I go and give my presentation to the rest of my coworkers at work right now? What does the work of the cross mean for me as I'm outside talking to my neighbor? What does it mean that the suffering servant suffered and died so that I might live? What does this actually mean for fill in the blank with the mundane, routine details of everyday life? Jesus, I am begging you, 
Help me open my spiritual eyes to grasp the centrality of your death, your resurrection as crucial for my important word, daily discipleship. Everyday discipleship. Sunday morning discipleship, Sunday afternoon discipleship, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, rinse and repeat discipleship. I'm begging you to give me eyes to see how the work of the cross and your resurrection apply in these ways. So with these thoughts before us, Luke is going to lead us. How does he lead us? He begins by doubling down point number one on the Savior's mission and identity. That's what we see in the transfiguration account. This is a beefy text. There's a lot going on in these verses. But you also see heaven's approval, heaven's doubling down, as it were, on who Jesus is and what he came to do. That's what you see starting in verse 28. You see Peter, John, James, they're given a glimpse of Jesus and his heavenly glory. His transfiguration is further confirming what he came to do and who he is. Just look at how Luke writes. He says, now about eight days after these sayings, what sayings? The whole Savior's summons sayings. About eight days have eclipsed. Jesus takes with him three disciples, Peter, James, John. They go up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face, Jesus' face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. If you just take your eyes and you scan up a couple of verses back up to verse 26, you see Jesus explaining something. Jesus explained that whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when... He, the Son of Man, comes in His glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. See, what you get here is this glimpse through the words of Jesus that there is coming a future day when Jesus, the Son of Man, will return. He's going to return coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him on that day as He truly is. Is. He is the glorious one clothed in splendor, clothed with majesty. Yet, in his incarnation, yet in his cloaking himself with humanity, Jesus laid those glories by. But what we see here in this transfiguration account up on the mountain, the veil of Jesus' flesh is lifted for this brief moment as Peter, James, and John get a foretaste of his future glory. And it's in the midst of this revealing that the three disciples observe Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus about his departure. Do you see that there in verse 31? Moses, Elijah appeared in glory, and they spoke of his, Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Your Bible probably has this down in the little footnotes down there. This is why it's always good to use your Bible in these ways. Where it probably tells you this, that in the original language, that specific word there for departure, when they spoke of his departure, that word departure in the original language is actually the word exodus. And so Moses and Elijah are here talking to Jesus about his exodus. So what we have here, if you take that word exodus and you read it into the text as we are meant to do, what we have on the mountaintop is Moses, who's standing here as the representative of God's law, and you have Elijah, who's standing there as the representative of God's prophets. They are appearing in glory, talking with Jesus in his revealed glory about his exodus. Now, in hearing that word Exodus, your mind is meant to do something. You're meant to go back to the book of Exodus, to the specific count of the Exodus in that book. 
And what you will remember is that in a nutshell, the Exodus event in the book of Exodus was an act of redemption. It was a saving act of God, a gracious move on God's part to say, my people who are in bondage, my people who are in slavery, I am going to redeem them out. I'm going to purchase them out of the slavery. It was God who was there saving his people. And if you remember, it was accomplished by the means of a sacrificial lamb, the lamb dying in the place of the people, the blood going on the lentils and the doorposts, and anyone who was saying, I'm going to trust in the blood of the lamb to save me from the death that is going to come, they would find that kind of salvation. It was the sacrificial lamb and the means of that sacrificial lamb that was going to carry God's judgment. Thus, as Moses and Elijah in a glorified state or appearing on the mountain, they confirm for Jesus' disciples who were there witnessing this conversation, they are witnessing the redoubling down of what Jesus has already told them. Jesus said back in verse 22, this is my mission. I have come to suffer, I have come to die, and I have come to rise again. And when Jesus said this, you not only have the words of Jesus saying, this is what I've come to do, you now have, in essence, the law and the prophets doubling down and saying, this is what Jesus has come to do. This is not some idea whipped up by Jesus out of nowhere. Rather, what Jesus is about to accomplish at Jerusalem through his death was a fulfillment of the redemption that God anticipated for his people at the Exodus. So that That shadowy picture in Exodus 12 is punching all the way forward to the cross. This is what Moses and Elijah are confirming. They are confirming this is Jesus' mission. This is what he came to do. But now notice it's not just that. It doesn't end there. This account continues forward. Verse 32 And as you begin to roll into verse 32, notice that Luke continues and he takes us into deeper confirmation of Jesus' identity, mission and identity. Look in your copy of Scripture. Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. This is starting off in verse 32. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And I love Luke, who is very gracious, and he says in parenthesis, yeah, he didn't really know what he was talking about. Praise God for that, because I find myself in the same place quite often. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. Again, very Exodus illusion here. The glory cloud, right? Fire by night, cloud by day, presence of God. They were afraid as they entered the cloud, and here comes this voice out of the cloud saying, This is my son. This is my chosen one. And then with emphasis, listen to him. Listen to him. Remember from last week in verse 20, Peter recognized Jesus as what? He is the Christ of God. But lest we think this is just merely Peter's opinion, God is here now confirming this confession. God's declaration of Jesus is the final word on the matter. Yes, Peter, the disciples are saying, this is what everyone else thinks you are. Here's what we think you are. But the opinion that matters at the end of the day is who does God say Christ is, Jesus is. He says, here is who he is. This is my son, my chosen one. And here is my command to you. Listen to him. In 10 words, these 10 words come loaded with extreme amounts of Old Testament reference. It's like your Old Testament half of your Bible is like a big giant funnel and it is funneling itself into these 10 words. 
God's voice declares Jesus to be my son. That sonship language we talked about earlier back when we were preaching through the genealogy that Luke gives us here. But what you also see is that this son language, and you see it in the Old Testament, it's talking about, it's a very kingly kind of way of talking about this one who is to come. He's going to be the anointed one who is to come. There is this coming anointed king, this son who's going to reign over all the nations. This is very Psalm 2. The voice says, he is my chosen one. If you go into Isaiah 42, verse 1, specifically, God is saying this suffering servant who is going to come, he is my chosen one. Now, God is saying, here he is. This one is here in front of you. He's going to give his life for the sins of his people. Some of the most famous verses that many love out of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. He is the prophet like Moses. If you go back into Deuteronomy 18, God is talking, tells Moses, there's going to come one like you, but he's going to be basically better than you. And when this one who is like you comes, you need to listen to him, he says in Deuteronomy 18. So now this phrase from the voice of God looking at the Christ, as it were, saying you need to listen to him. It's connecting all these dots for the three disciples. What we have in front of us is heavens, as it were, stamp of approval. Jesus is the son, anointed king, who's going to rule and reign over the nations, the suffering servant who's going to lay down his life for his people. And when he speaks, we need to listen. So when Jesus then says, guys, as the Christ, this is my mission. And then when he says, because of my mission, this is what it means for you to follow me, we cannot, we must not ignore these words, but accept Jesus's words. So once again, the Savior's mission and identity are firmly established. And from this point, Luke then turns into all these verses in the back half of our section where we see the disciples' failure and ultimately the disciples' need. Having once again firmly established the Savior's mission and identity, Luke then turns and says, I'm going to show you what this means for you when you find yourself struggling to walk in obedience to the summons, struggling to deny, struggling to die, struggling to follow. We're going to see the disciples' failure and the disciples' need. So here's what we're going to do. As we read through these verses, what I want you to do is pay attention. I want you to pay attention to two lines that Luke is striking through these verses. When you read through these verses, you're going to notice two realities. You're going to notice Jesus' competence, what Jesus is able to do, what he can accomplish. You're going to see him do certain things where he's going to, he's going to heal, he's going to teach, he's just going to do what Jesus can do. And simultaneously, running right along parable, parallel to that, you're going to see while Jesus is doing, you're going to see the uh, disciples failing to do, failing to do, failing to do. So here are these verses, verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. So we're going from mountain high to valley low. Behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. Be a very helpless feeling if you've ever had children just crying out in pain and agony and you can't do anything about it. It's a very helpless feeling. The daddy says this thing convulses him so that he foams at the mouth. It shatters him and will hardly leave him. And here I am begging your disciples to cast it out, but they cannot. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus, in the midst of this, turns to his disciples, verse 44, and says, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. 
but they did not understand the saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And then seemingly immediately this argument arises among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. In response, John answers, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So when we work through those verses, what are the two lines that we can strike? One line is a line that traces out what Jesus is able to do. First, you see Jesus healing. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is healing as he rebukes the unclean spirit and healed the boy. Jesus is able to do this, and he is doing this. Then we saw Jesus foretelling as he said to his disciples, guys, you need to pay attention. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man, we're heading to Jerusalem, and I am going to be delivered up to what? To suffer, die, and then rise again. And then we see Jesus teaching his disciples about what it looks like to serve with humility. But remember, right alongside this line of what Jesus is doing, Luke is expertly striking this second line through the text, showing what the disciples are failing to do. So while Jesus is healing and Jesus is foretelling and Jesus is teaching with the disciples, there is this failure of faith There's this failure to understand, and there's this failure to serve. It's this sharp dichotomy that surely you've experienced in your life and my life, right? You wake up in the morning, you spend time devotionally in the Word, you see Jesus who is sufficient, sufficient to save, sufficient to provide, sufficient to lead, sufficient to guide, sufficient to nourish, sufficient to sustain, and then you go right out, and your whole day feels like failure, 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 failure. Yeah? That's what's being laid out before us right now in this text. When we read about the disciples' failure with the boy who suffered seizures, it seems very strange, doesn't it? Because Jesus had given them power and authority to heal. All you got to do is go back to the beginning of Luke 9. It's like, here's the power, here's the authority, go out and heal. They go out and heal, but now here they are unable to heal. They're powerless to save, and they're being referred to by Jesus as a faithless and twisted generation. This is another Exodus link. When Moses refers back to the Exodus generation and says, yes, you guys were redeemed out of of Egypt, but then the remainder of your walk seemed to be marked by faithlessness and this twisted in-on-yourself-ness. Jesus is now applying this to the disciples. Go down to verse 44, Jesus states with emphasis, you need to let these words sink into your ears. I am going to go to Jerusalem and die. Jesus is impressing on his disciples the fact that his work on the cross, of which Moses and Elijah have confirmed, and his work on the cross about which God the Father has commanded his disciples to listen to, guys, what you need to know is this. It really will involve my suffering, and it really will involve their cross-bearing, self-denying discipleship. However, here they are failing to understand. They're blinded to the necessity of God's Christ being a suffering, dying Savior. This idea of taking the word suffering and smushing it up against the word Messiah, it would be almost as if Jesus came out and said, I'm going to talk to you today about delicious vomit. And you're like, what? Like, those two worlds don't collide. Vomit, not delicious. I know you keep talking about it. I know you keep saying it is, but I just refuse to believe it. There's no way these things can mesh together. If you can grasp the the dissonance between delicious vomit, you're on your way to grasping the dissonance the disciples would have felt in hearing that the Savior, Messiah, promised of old, must suffer and die. It was inconceivable. They're blinded to it. They don't see it. 
And in verse 46, Luke says it's this failure to see the mustness of Jesus' death and resurrection that then leaves them hopeless in service. And this makes sense, right? If the guy you're following is not a suffering savior, then I don't know that I really need to suffer. The guy you're following is not one who's going to die. I don't know that I need to die. The guy that you're following is not going to lay his life down in selflessness for the sake of others. I don't know that I need to lay my life down. Actually, if I think the suffering Savior is not a suffering Savior, but a Savior who's going to come, royal, political, established rule over Rome, what you need to know is this. I'm going to start arguing with you about who's the greatest in the kingdom because I'm going to be the one who's above all the best and all the rest, and I'm going to be the one at his right hand, and I'm going to be the one who's going to be his go-to guy. So do you see here the failure on their part to grasp that the Messiah is suffering means that they have a perception of who the Messiah is, and it's this false perception of who the Messiah is that leads them to turn around and go, you know what, I'm actually better than you. And you're like, how in the world do they get there? It's actually not that hard. It's very easy to get to the place where you turn in on self and become self-reliant and become self-promoting when we lose sight of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Surely you guys have been there before in your life. Just look back upon your life and recognize the times and those daily moves when you found yourself in sin. Feeding the flesh. My hunch is that in the moment what was not front and center in your mind's eye was my Savior did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many and that is what is controlling my tongue right now and that is what is controlling my thoughts right now and that is what is controlling my actions right now. So notice the disciples' failure. They are faithless, they're twisted, they're blind, and they're self-serving. Sound like a mirror that you've looked into lately? No? Okay, just sorry, just me. You guys get to listen to me preach to myself up here right now. Ever feel like you've just lived in a faithless, twisted, blind, self-serving life? Notice But in the scriptures here, it's actually good that we see that it's possible for those who know Jesus to be the Christ, the Savior, the Lord. It's good to see that there are times when those who can confess with their mouth, this is who Jesus is. And I am even willing to confess this is what he came to do. It's good to see that sometimes in our pursuit of our Savior, there are times when we are faithless, twisted, blind, and self-serving. Why? Because it gives us hope that we never move beyond our place and need for Jesus in my life. How did the disciples go from casting out demons to unable to cast out demons? As I wrestled with this this past week, my best guess comes down to this. There's some measure of Jesus shows up and says, I'm giving you this gift. We're going to walk by it. We're going to trust. I don't see how this can happen. In faith, I'm going to lean on you, Jesus, and I'm going to walk in this way. You guys know it as well as I know. It's very easy to wake up the next day and be like, you know what? I think I've got this thing licked. I'm going to walk out not resting by faith in Christ. I'm going to walk out today doing what John Davis wants to do. And here they are now unable to cast these things out. You see, it's here in the disciples' failure that Luke is extending you and me an invitation. Like the disciples, we are faithless and we need salvation. Like the disciples, we are blind and we need to be given sight. Like the disciples, we are self-serving and we need the one who came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many to humble us and to teach us as well. In other words, it's in the disciples' failure to daily deny 
daily die and daily follow that they discover their ever-deepening need for the Christ who will die and rise again. And here Luke is helping us. He's helping you and he's helping me to see this same need in our everyday discipleship. Does anyone here this morning sense this kind of need going into this new year? I do. I do. I don't have 20, 23 figured out. Maybe you do, but I don't. We are going to call our Jesus family to some denying and dying this year for the sake of the gospel. We are going to very quickly bump into our need for Jesus to show us, man, I don't know how to do this. My natural tendency in this moment is to not deny but to serve, not to die but to live for self, not to follow but to say, I will promote Jonathan Davis. That is our natural tendency. This is why it is absolutely crucial for us to roll into this new year. When it comes to corporate prayer, when it comes to the work of evangelism, when it comes to getting the training that we need to get so that we can walk in a way where we are going out harvesting and fishing for the souls of men and women, when it comes to just the work of being individuals who are moving about in our spheres of just influence in our neighborhoods and our places of work and our places of recreation, when it comes to the corporate footprint that we have as Delta Church in a local community with real live souls of real live women and men who live around us, when it comes to thinking, what does it look like for me as a disciple who denies dying? and follows the Savior who came to die and rise again. Like, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for me? I'm still wrestling with what I, if what I'm about to say is actually, oh, I, I think it's true. I'm trying to figure out if it's helpful. But in my mind's eyes, I've been thinking about these things here. This is the phrase that's been in my mind. The time for talk is done. The time for action is now. Does that make sense? The time for talk is done. The time for action is now. The beauty of our local body of believers, and I say I don't know if it's helpful because I don't want it to be a guilt trip. And I would say I don't know if it's helpful because I don't want it to be a very heavy-handed kind of thing. So if it turns out to be very unhelpful, I will go back and we can reread at the sermon and we'll just block that out. But I'm just trying to be honest with you of where I'm at and what I'm wrestling with. I think the beauty of our local body is this. We have healthy categories. We are a biblically literate family. We know what Jesus calls us to do from the scriptures. But you know as well as I know there's a difference between talk and there's a difference between action. And what's laying heavy on the heart of the elders is we got to experience what we got to experience, Charles and I, in London, and what that's going to mean for how we're going to, the impact that we were impacted by, and what does this mean for our local church, and what does this mean for our corporate community footprint, and what does this mean for us as individuals? We're wrestling with this idea of that phrase. Time for talk is done. That's not to say we won't talk, and it's not going to say we won't continue to teach, and we're not going to continue to build. You guys understand what I'm saying. We can talk about these things to our blue in the face. At some point in time, we will make the decision the time for action is now. And there's just this pressing sense, and whatever this means, we've got a vision of what it means. There's also a measure of we're not sure of what it will mean. But I think it's going to mean something. It's going to mean that we as a local Jesus family are going to have to deny ourselves. It means we're going to have to die to ourselves. It means we're going to have to follow the one who came to die so that we might live. We know this, and this is in large part why we are changing up and tweaking and massaging our liturgy on Sunday mornings is that if this is going to be true of us and not just more bloviating talk, then we have to bend our knees 
And we must ride and die on being a Jesus family who prays. Does that make sense? We have to. I can whip us up in a fervor and say, let's storm the gates and blow out of here and let's go storm the community for the name of Jesus. But there's a way to go out in the name of Jesus self-reliant. Yeah? There's also a way to go out into the name of Jesus Christ-reliant. That's why, if you saw my post on Slack, over the next couple of Sundays, we're going to look at how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. It's interesting to me that the one request you find in the scriptures on the lips of the disciples, they don't say, teach us how to cast out demons, teach us how to heal people, teach us how to proclaim the kingdom. The one request on the lips of the disciples is, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? Which tells me, you and me need to learn how to pray. And that's why we're going to focus on prayer for the next three or four Sundays. And that's why we're changing up our corporate liturgy on Sunday morning so we can begin to put into action what we say we believe to be true. Why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you all this as an invitation for you to pray and as an invitation to come to do the very things that we see here this morning. I go back to the main idea. I go back to what we stated in the form of a prayer. Jesus, because of my followership of you, because of my followership of you, I'm a sinner. You have saved me. You are my Savior. You're my Lord. I follow you. Because of my followership of you, because I recognize it can be one step forward and then two steps back. Help me. Help me. Open my spiritual eyes to grasp the centrality of your death and resurrection is crucial for my daily discipleship. And I'm asking you to do this so that I can truly follow you as you desire me. To follow you. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, we do pray this. For those who are here this morning and would say, my eyes have been opened. My eyes have been opened to see my need for Jesus. To see my need for Him to save me. I need His help. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, help us. Jesus, would you open up the spiritual eyes of those who are here this morning? Would you open up the spiritual eyes of some who need to see you for the first time as Savior and Lord? They need that, to have that first moment of salvation. Would you do this work? For those of us who would say, yes, I have been saved, Jesus has opened my eyes. Would you help us to realize we never move beyond our need for Jesus to refocus our gaze, as it were? So Jesus, even today, tomorrow, in the ebb and flow of life, would you do a miraculous work, a supernatural work of creating in your people, this Jesus family here, a desire to walk, live, speak, act, think, work, parents so that the cross is ever before us. Lord, we're asking you to do this so that we can follow you as you desire. We want you to be seen. The genuine desire of the genuine disciple is, I want Jesus to be seen through me. I don't want others just to see merely me. So for your name, for your glory, for your honor, for your fame, for the spread of salvation in you and you alone, Jesus, would you answer these prayers in the multitude of appropriate ways in the lives of of those who are here this morning. Lord Jesus, help us to grow in ever-deepening dependence upon you. It's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen.